Oh, you're welcome here. Is hell. All right. Manufacturing descent since 1996. This is hell. Wisconsin is our far right future. That is, if the Koch funded Republican Party has its way. If the experiment in Wisconsin succeeds, and it will if the Republican Party maintains, if not expands their grip over the Wisconsin state. Senate and Assembly, a grip on power they got through a 2010 electoral victory that they turned into a mandate to gerrymander so the state legislature did not reflect the will of the people as much as how the Republican Party could impose its will on the people. If the Republican Party maintains all of that, it's going to get even more far right in Wisconsin. Next, they imposed voter suppression, especially in high population centers in southeastern Wisconsin, where it just so happens to have the state's largest population of people of color. Then all you have to do is solidify that power that you've already entrenched through gerrymandering and voter suppression in another census year this year. And you've taken a state that was dominated by socialists 100 years ago to being a place where open displays of weapons by armed fascists are tolerated by local law enforcement. And that is definitely the plan the Republican Party has for the entire country. Gerrymander to misrepresent and suppress, to make certain the will of the people is locked out of the voting and democratic process. We'll find out what happens, how bad it's getting, and what if the whole U.S. of A. becomes Wisconsin in a few minutes when we talk to writer and Milwaukee resident Emma Roller, author of The New Republic Story, How Wisconsin Became a Bastion of White Supremacy. The Badger State is designed to help Republi- or to keep Republicans in power at the expense of the minority vote. Can Joe Biden overcome these structural disadvantages? Emma's work has appeared in Jezebel, Teen Vogue, In These Times, The Intercept, and The New York Times. You can find out more about Emma at emmaroller.substack.com, and you can follow Emma on Twitter at Emma Roller. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show podcast live streaming host, Chuck Mertz. Producing today's show is Daphne Agosen. Daphne, how was your weekend? Hi, Chuck. Hi, how are you? (laughs) I'm good. Uh, Two things about my weekend. One, I voted to change the Chilean constitution, and we got 80% approval. Oh, well, congratulations. So that wasn't here at, like, Warren Park or one of our own polling stations. You absentee balloted balloted in uh, Chile, correct? Uh, Yeah, yeah. (laughs) I I voted in the consulate. Oh, oh, you did? That's where you have to go for it? There's no, like, uh, mail-in or anything like that? You have to actually go down there? Yeah, no, we don't have mail-in yet. Oh, crazy. So uh, you voted for the constitution to be changed. Congratulations. Thank you. And uh, what else do you do? Uh, I lost my scarf. <laughs> <laughs> I hope that we can uh, find your scarf and that we can change the Chilean constitution in one weekend. My weekend was going great until there was a bit of a health scare in my family yesterday. It didn't turn out to be any big deal, but the freaking pandemic makes every every health scare really freaking scary. If you go get medical treatment because of all the COVID cases that are going through the roof here in Illinois, you're actually taking a health risk by going to seek medical treatment. So your choice is stay home, hoping whatever you have, whatever it is, won't kill you or get help. And in the process, you might catch something that will not only possibly kill you, but everyone you are in contact with as well, meaning all of your family and friends, the people who you are quarantining with, the people you're closest with. Jesus, this stupid virus. I, I hate this pandemic. It's driving me crazy. More importantly, Alex, or Alex, Daphne, I have Alex written here and it's supposed to say Daphne. More importantly, Daphne, what's this week's question from hell? This week's, this week's question from hell is, how are you frightening children in your neighborhood this weekend? (laughs) How are you frightening children in your neighborhood this weekend? Oh, the same way I frighten them all the time by yelling at them to get off my 
damn lawn. The person with our favorite answer to this week's question mail wins our new Grand Black This Is Hell t-shirt. You can check out the new Grand Black This Is Hell t-shirt and all our merchandise right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support where you will see all the ways you can contribute to completely listener-supported This Is Hell. Without you, we got nothing, so thanks for all of your support. You can leave your answer to this week's question mail at our Facebook page. You can tweet it to us, or you can email it to chuck at thisishell.com or alex at thisishell.com. But we have to have your answer in by the end of Friday, uh, Thursday's show, when we will be announcing this week's winner. Daphne will be sharing some of your answers to this week's question from hell following our guest. Brave enough to be streaming live, dumb enough to be goofy, stupid enough to think that we could be a regular part of your weekly hangover. This is hell. And Daphne has this week's hangover cure. This week's hangover cure is beet juice and green juice. According to the article, Eight Natural Remedies to Help Cure a Hangover, at the Oshner Health website, blog.ochsner.org, beet juice is quite possibly the very last thing on your list when you're trying to recover from over-drinking. But here's the science behind it. Beet juice helps to increase and improve blood flow and oxygenation throughout our muscle and tissues, which can help us feel better all around. And green juice, think juiced spinach and kale, is rich in compounds that help support our body's natural detoxification process. And both beet juice and green juice are alkalizing, helping to neutralize our body's acidity after a night of drinking. That makes this week's Hangover Cure, beet juice and green juice. Excellent read, and that sounds like a pretty good Hangover Cure, actually. Like, it might actually work, unlike a lot of the ones that we mention here on the show. Putting profits before people since 1996, this is hell. And if you want to subscribe and contribute to our horrible business model of putting people before profits, you can go to thisishell.com and click on support to see all the ways to support completely listener-supported This Is Hell. Sure, you can get the This Is Hell face mask or trucker's cap or t-shirt or tote bag or coffee mug to show your support. But you can also become a subscriber to This Is Hell. Uh, the This Is Hell Patreon podcast, which happens every Friday at 10 a.m. by subscribing at patreon.com slash thisishell, where you can now find over 150 Patreon podcasts right now. It's like an additional year of This Is Hell with monologues by me and classic interviews that you cannot find anywhere else online but on Patreon. On this past Friday's uh, Patreon podcast, we shared our August 6th, 2005 interview with Rosanna Barbero, head of the Women's Agenda for Change, who was working to organize Cambodian sex workers and had so far unionized as many as 5,000 sex workers in the country. The interview is an in-depth 52-minute long conversation that introduced us to the world of sex worker organizing and labor rights, and it is a must-listen. Also, because it was one of our first conversations on sex workers and sex worker organizing, so we got a lot of the basics in, and then we got a little bit more in-depth as well. Also on Patreon, I considered the urban-rural divide and why country folk have the stereotype of city dwellers being useless elites, while those in... Uh, urban areas have a bigotry toward those out in the sticks that makes them out to be a bunch of useful idiots to be used and abused in any way city elites deem necessary. That bigotry held by both sides, what Wei Wang referred to as metronormativity on last week's show, may have been on display this year during Patreon, as I have been reporting on what is being reported in the Northern Michigan small town weekly newspaper I got as a gift last year, the Houghton Lake Resorter. So, using as a point of reference the Your Opinion section of the resorter, where locals send in their views on just about anything, I explored those rural stereotypes by perusing the words of those who live in the middle of nowhere and their views on the upcoming presidential election. To sum up, God wants Trump, Christ wants Biden, and after this November's election, the U.S. will either be communist or run by Nazis. On Patreon, I mentioned how one letter reads, If being a Trump supporter meant that I'm addicted to loving my country and its democratic way of governing, to expecting officials to provide for law and order, to respecting the flag, and to supporting equality for all, freedom of speech, freedom to choose, and the freedom to determine one's own destiny, then I'm proud to be called a Trump addict. But the problem with being an addict, especially in this area of Michigan where there's really high levels of uh, alcohol and substance abuse addictions, the problem with being an addict that the letter writer to the Your Opinion section seems to have overlooked is that an addict continues to to use even when they know that what they're using is bad for them, which led me to wonder if the letter was actually a cry for help. But it's not only the admitted Trump addict that is addicted to Trump. 
According to a Sunday Washington Post article, The End of Democracy, to many Americans, the future looks dark if either side wins. Senior editor Mark Fisher writes, Now the worry on the right that a democratic win will plunge the, the nation into catastrophic socialism and the fear on the left that a Trump victory will produce a turn toward totalitarianism has created a perilous moment. The idea that if the other side wins, we're in for it, said Peter Stearns, a historian of emotions at George Mason University. He then cites uh, Stearns adding, The two sides have come Come to view each other not as opponents but as deeply evil and that's happening when trust in institutions has collapsed collapsed and each group is choosing not to live near each other it seems there's no middle ground it's not only the trump addict who is enjoying using who knows his addiction is bad for him but he continues to shoot up daily if not every hour or every few minutes. It's also those who hate Trump and are addicted to the point that they know that hate is not good for them, but they still go on hating. A friend who has shared pictures online of Boogaloo boys patrolling the streets of Lansing, Michigan, the capital of Michigan, the capital where the attempted coup was supposed to take place, they march in full battle gear with assault rifles drawn posted and uh, they're posted all over social media my friend who posts those pictures also posted the article from the washington post and he shared this comment people on the right are sincerely freaking out at the idea that a communist anarchist nation will burn to the ground in an orgy of minority-led invasions riots and spending sprees and I would add that many people on the left believe that if Trump wins, suddenly IBM is going to have punch cards on all of us. And you will not like what happens once IBM gets that punch card operation up and running again. Right now, the general consensus is that in eight days, we will likely be voting in the last U.S. presidential election ever because the country will go straight up Hitler with Trump or will be 100% Stalin with a Biden electoral victory. It's either concentration camps or pogroms. Pick your poison. We started last week talking to Gloria Dickey, who writes on the environment at The Guardian about the Arctic ice cap melting far faster than anyone predicted. Gloria said that the world was has pretty much given up on changing our behavioral habits by stopping burning fossil fuels or any kind of mitigation on our part, and is now only hoping for a new technology to come along and save us from our own self-inflicted demise. Gloria said this refusal to change our ways leaves only one hope left, and that hope is for a technological miracle. And hope for miracles is not a policy position, it's a fantasy. A lot of the people writing to the resorter were praying for miracles, miracles that could save the United States from communists or Nazis, and that is frightening. When all we have left politically is hope for a miracle, the people no longer have any power only hope and hope is just a dream of a future that will never be never happen unless we have more power politically more frightening at least to me is how quickly whatever happens next will be tolerated will be accepted as normal how easily we will adapt to the next whatever it is accepting it as we go on with our daily lives uninterrupted so sure it might be nice to break this addiction we all have to all things trump but we can't just end up hooked on the methadone of biden or the democratic national committee either and that's why whatever happens on election day no matter who you vote for no matter who is the president come january there's a real good chance even if the person we voted for wins even if the person we want as president is the next president we'll still have plenty plenty of reasons to say this is hell coming up so goes right-wing wisconsin so goes the united states we'll also have rotten history and tell you the rest of this week's guests the planet's on fire so yes this is hell wisconsin's right-wing leadership is entrenched through gerrymandering and voter suppression with the help of Koch family money Wisconsin Republicans have effectively distorted democracy into a self-fulfilling process of Republican power forever dominating the state, with voters having little choice. And if it worked in Wisconsin, you can bet they will try to roll out the same plan in every state. Here to tell us what's happening in Wisconsin from Milwaukee, writer Emma Roller is author of The New Republic Story, How Wisconsin Became a Bastion of White Supremacy. The Badger State is designed to keep Republicans in power at the expense of the minority vote. Can Joe Biden overcome these structural disadvantages. Welcome to This Is Hell, Emma. 
happy to be in hell with you. <laughs> Find out more about Emma at emmaroller.substack.com, and you can follow Emma on Twitter at Emma Roller. You quote Judge Frank Easterbrook writing in a 2007 federal jury conviction of three Milwaukee police officers violating the civil rights of a person of color, and those violations led to the victim, Frank Jude Jr., having a concussion, <laughs> a broken nose, a sprained ankle, and fractured left hand, a fractured sinus cavity, cuts and bruises all over his body, and gross swelling and bruising in his left eye. You quote the judge writing in their decision, the distance between civilization and barbarity and the time needed to pass from one state to the other is depressingly short. And you add that Judge Easterbrook's statement could pass as a verdict on Wisconsin as a state, which under its veneer of Midwestern niceness is, and I'm glad that you capitalize that, is home to men and women who are as animated by white supremacy as in any state in the deep deep South. I know because I'm related to a few of them, you write. In its folksy, mild-mannered way, the state's blithe tolerance of systemic racism and police brutality foreshadowed the Republican Party's national strategy of linking its electoral fortunes with racist demagoguery. Blithe Tolerance. How would you describe that blithe, that casual tolerance and indifference towards systemic racism, racist demagoguery, police violence, even white supremacy? How have you seen that blithe tolerance manifest itself in Wisconsin? Because I think I've seen this in Michigan, in Illinois. I think I've mm-hmm. seen it a lot of places. Mm-hmm. Sure. Well, I think, you know, it's the same story across the country. Uh, It's not just Wisconsin and it's not just the Midwest. It's not just about Midwestern niceness. It's that, uh, you know, the people who are complicit in the advancement of minority rule and white supremacy in this country, they're not people who are, you know, going out and wearing hoods and burning crosses, although a few of them surely are. Um, They are otherwise nice, moms and dads living in suburban houses who, um, you know, see issues of race and racism as a gross overreaction and see it somehow as a threat to their own well-being to be confronted with the fact that there are cases like Frank Jude Jr., who, um, as I write in my story, was brutally assaulted by a group of off-duty police officers in Milwaukee in the early 2000s, um, when confronted with these issues, it just, and I speaking from firsthand experience, it is very, very difficult to get people whose identity is tied up in, you know, in for lack of a better word, their own whiteness. It's intrinsic to their own sense of self. And it's very difficult to get people to, extract that sense of self from their own um, believed investment in advancing these, you know, hateful causes. How you said that they're just your typical suburban mom and dad. How often, you know, what we're seeing right now is a lot of white supremacists on the street showing that they are white supremacists, making it, mm-hmm. you know, making it known to everybody that they have fascist, uh, neo-Nazi tendencies. You talk about how mm-hmm. every everyday suburban mom and dad uh, may have these tendencies. How often are these tendencies not on display? How often are they hidden from view? And so we're just unaware that this kind of white supremacy exists in places like Wisconsin. Sure. Well, um, people have actually been (laughs) kind of marking themselves um, in a weird way in Wisconsin, at least. I'm not sure if um, they have this in other states, but you'll see after, you know, after the brutal um, shooting of Jacob Blake in Kenosha this summer, there was, and after the George Floyd um, has brutal killing in Minneapolis, there, you saw this uprising of white people sort of waking up to the fact that like, wow, this is not okay. This is not what um, equal justice under the law looks like. Um, and you even saw in, in predominantly white small towns in Wisconsin, people marching in, you know, in support of Black Lives Matter. So there was this huge, um, outpouring of support for the movement from white people where that hadn't existed before. However, 
you also saw this strain of reactionary politics that I argue is endemic to Wisconsin going back to Joseph McCarthy in the 1950s through today. And you now see if you're driving through, you know, the Milwaukee suburbs, the so-called wow counties that ring Milwaukee, you'll see yard signs that say we back the badge, support police, you know, um, yard signs that are effectively saying don't question police's authority. And I'm sure for the people who put out those yard signs, they don't think that they're saying, yes, let's give police the right to kill black people with impunity. However, that is what that message is getting across. You write that it's impossible to talk about Wisconsin's politics without addressing the state's deeply entrenched racism. As a state, Wisconsin Mm -hmm. is still much whiter than the rest of the country. Milwaukee is the most segregated metro area in the country, according to a 2018 Brookings study. Wisconsin locks up black men at a higher rate than any other state, according to a 2013 University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee study. Evictions also fall disproportionately on black tenants in Wisconsin. Mm -hmm. Uh, Fully 79% of black families in Milwaukee County are poor or low income compared to 39% of white families in the county, according to a 2018 UW-Madison report. So if Wisconsin seemingly has so much institutional white supremacy, what's getting white supremacists so upset? You would think with this kind of inequality, they would seem like the entrenched power and that they wouldn't feel like they're, they were in under any threat whatsoever. So what explains why in relatively one of the most unequal states in the country, there's concerns from white supremacists when their white supremacy seems to be intact. Right. That's that's a good point. I mean, from the view of people who want to advance the cause of white supremacy, Wisconsin, they should count Wisconsin as a win, um, at least over the past 10 years, seeing how Republicans in the state have advanced minority rule and disenfranchised people of color and all of these other attacks on civil rights. Um, I think it just goes back to the, the reactionary mind, as Corey Robin wrote in his book, people who have this fundamentally reactionary form of politics where they have a really hard time conceptualizing their own beliefs and their own sense of self um, in a vacuum. And for that reason, they are always conceptualizing themselves as the opposite of whoever they perceive as their own enemies, right? So it's not that they are, again, they, they may not say, I'm a white supremacist and I'm proud of that. It's more oh, these protesters are just complaining and, you know, why are they destroying property? And this is, they're just blowing things way out of proportion. And don't they know we need to be respecting our police who are keeping us safe and just completely glossing over what the protesters are actually trying to get across, which is that no equal protection under the law is not happening. And, you know, we need to do something about that. You write that the protests that erupted this August in Kenosha over the police shooting of Jacob Blake signaled outrage not only over Wisconsin's bloody record of police brutality, but also over a deeper racist turn in state politics, one that helped swing Wisconsin to Donald Trump in 2016. If Democrats Mm -hmm. want to win Wisconsin this fall, a big if still, according to Democrats on the ground, they will have to face down the ugly and still largely unacknowledged legacy of white supremacy in America's dairy land. What might activists, organizers, what might people in the Democratic Party, Democratic Party loyalists even, what mistake might they be making by thinking that this is only Trump? What is this only mm. about Donald Trump? Because a lot of people think, oh, if we just get Joe Biden in office, all of this ends. So what happens if we mm. only focus on Donald Trump? What do we miss about what has taken place in places like Wisconsin? Sure. Yeah. And I think that is really what I was trying to get across in my story is that Wisconsin was like this before Donald Trump was elected in 2016. Um, I trace this back to when Scott Walker was elected governor of Wisconsin in 2010. But this history goes way back. As I said earlier, you can take it back to Joseph McCarthy, who was 
the senator from Wisconsin who led the Red Scare crusade when he was in office. Um, But (laughs) to use a cliche, Wisconsin is a land of contrast. We had this string of socialist mayors in Milwaukee at the turn of the century who really championed um, good government and public goods. They championed stuff like public vaccination campaigns, which, you know, is even more relevant today than ever. They championed clean water and public education, public health. Um, And it stands in stark contrast that 40 years later, the senator from Wisconsin was crusading against so-called communists when many of what this country, you know, are, are the biggest success stories in this country of public education, of public parks, um, attacking basically the the people behind all of those things as anti-American and as communist threats to the United States. So it is very difficult to sort of tease out the good from the bad. And it is even more uncomfortable for me, given that I grew up in Milwaukee, I live here. I'm also you know, a white person who lives in Milwaukee in an extremely uh, segregated city. And I've witnessed racism firsthand and, you know, frankly, been a party to it firsthand over the course of my life because it's just in the water. And that's not just in Wisconsin. That's the entire country. Is that progressive notion of 100 years ago that dominated Wisconsin, is that progressive progressive notion simply gone, no longer existing in Wisconsin, or are they victims of institutionalized inequality in the election process? Are mm-hmm. they absent or are they silenced? Uh, I would definitely say that they are not absent. There are many proud progressives in Wisconsin, um, and you saw that in in the spring of 2011, when I was um, a student at UW-Madison, there were huge, huge protests against Scott Walker for introducing this union-busting legislation called Act 10 um, that the Republicans in the state state house rammed through. Tens of thousands of people, and I write my mom included, my mom who was a public educator for over 30 years, protested at the state capitol and it became a national news story so you do see there has been resistance coming from wisconsinites and it's not like that progressive moment is lost or it's gone now and that's why i try to even though a lot of what i write about in my piece is pretty depressing and infuriating i do argue that there is reason for hope. And I think now more than ever, more white people are sort of waking up to the the fact of how people of color in Wisconsin, which, as you say, is still an extremely white state, are waking up to that injustice and sort of forging the class politics of, you know, the labor movement historically in Wisconsin, which had such a such has such a wealthy history in Wisconsin fusing that with um, the politics of racial justice. And I think that has the power to be a really transformative movement in my state and other states across the country. So how much do you believe the reason the far right has come to have such power in Wisconsin is because of a weakened labor movement? If so, uh, you know, mm-hmm. why does deunionization lead to even those who openly carry symbols of white supremacy. What do you think that is the connection between uh, not having a large organized labor movement anymore and the rise of white supremacy? Mm-hmm. Sure. Well, um, I would say that the overarching thing that links those two concepts and minority rule and all of these things that Republicans in Wisconsin are pushing is it's the interests of capital. It's the interests of the bosses that are being pushed. And there's no better example of this than shortly after Scott Walker was elected, a prank call was made. I think it was from an Australian talk show, I want to say. Some talk show called actually called um, 
you know, the governor's office and said, hi, I'm Charles Koch. I'm here to talk to Governor Walker. Um, either it might have been David Koch, one of the Koch brothers. They posed as one of the Koch brothers and said, I need to talk to Governor Walker. And they passed him right through. And there's audio that you can look up of this radio host pretending to be one of the Koch brothers and getting Walker on the line that quickly. Meanwhile, Walker's own constituents are screaming for, you know, him to protect union rights and not bust up public employee unions. And they can't get through to him. But, you know, some a billionaire who does not live in Wisconsin can get through to him in five minutes. Um, so I think that is the best example I can give of how, you know, money in politics corrupts and how Republicans are or have shown themselves to be, you know, the errand boys of capital in this country and happy to do so for whatever table scraps they get in return for it. And they, you can tell that they know that labor power, worker power, that needs to go. That needs to be the first thing to go because that is the biggest threat to the bosses is when workers get together and fight for their own rights collectively. We are speaking with writer and Milwaukee resident Emma Roller, author of The New Republic Story, How Wisconsin Became a Bastion of White Supremacy. You can find out more about Emma at emmaroller.substack.com, and you can follow Emma on Twitter at Emma Roller. You were saying that you were involved in the 2011 protests at the state capitol in in Madison, Wisconsin, about Act 10. Uh, Why do you think that those protests, even though they succeeded in getting the numbers out, they succeeded in occupying the capitol building, they succeeded in getting their message Mm -hmm. out to the public. They even succeeded in getting a, having a runoff election, which may or may not have been a good strategy. Yeah, re- a recall, recall election. Right. So, so to so to you, what explains why that didn't work in challenging uh, Republican power within Wisconsin? Why why didn't ha- it have an impact? So today we wouldn't be, mm-hmm. you know, uh, Wisconsinites would not be facing gerrymandering. Sure, that's a good point. So while we saw this huge. Um, outpouring of resistance against Scott Walker's administration, against Act 10, against this union-busting legislation. I don't want to say it didn't do anything. It didn't make a wave electorally within the state. And that is a testament to the Republican project that we're seeing in other states across the country and why I argue that Wisconsin is, is this sort of laboratory of anti-democracy, minority rule, whatever you want to call it, because they have advanced very strategically this project of gerrymandering, redistricting, so that Republicans can essentially choose their own electorate. And in the same breath, also introducing really restrictive voter ID legislation that disenfranchises people like college students, and predominantly impacts people of color, and even specifically targeting counties like Milwaukee County and Dane County, which are the two, um, you know, biggest centers where people of color live in the state. So you've seen all these, not just political tactics, but real systemic changes um, so that it can reinforce Republicans' rule in the state in perpetuity. And right before I got on the phone with you, I actually looked up this statistic from the Brennan Center for Justice. Um, So the way that Wisconsin's maps are drawn now, which is how Republicans drew them after the 2010 census, is, um, let me read from this article. The author says that even if Democrats managed to win a historically high 54% of the two-party vote, a level they've reached only once in the last 20 years, Republicans would still end up with a solid nine-seat majority in the state assembly. So 54% Democratic vote still winds up with Republican majority in the state legislature. I mean, you can, (laughs) anyone can plainly see that that is not how any functioning democracy is supposed to work. Um, So it's just a farce. And I, again, trace it back to 2010, which is another year 
that is significant because it was a census year. And Republicans, after they pretty much swept the election in 2010, they were able to redraw these maps in their own favor, as well as um, introduce all of these union busing bills and voter ID laws that further entrenched their own power in the state, um, no matter how many no matter how many Wisconsinites vote against them, which is, it's shocking when you look at it on paper and it's what you're seeing um, in states like North Carolina and now nationally. And you point out how you believe that the reason that Trump won in 2016 is because of voter suppression. But that's not the storyline that everybody's being told. We're told that uh, Trump lost Wisconsin or Trump won Wisconsin in 2016 because Hillary Clinton did not visit Wisconsin. We are told that Hillary Clinton lost Wisconsin in 2016 because uh, the black community was upset at Hillary Clinton for whatever reason, but Mm -hmm. including not visiting Wisconsin. You point out that mm-hmm. it's most likely due to voter suppression. What explains to you why we have these two other stories when it seems like on the face of it, it's just voter suppression. That's what caused Trump to win in 2016 in Wisconsin. Right. Well, I think there has been a concerted effort to mask these um, systemic changes when we're talking about gerrymandering and voter suppression. And the other thing is, um, it's just easier to process for the human brain to process personal narratives, right? So it's a little bit trickier to say like, oh, look at these maps, look at how these district maps have changed over the past 10 years, or look at this piece of legislation that, you know, claims to have the same effect on everyone, but really is going um, and attacking these specific communities that tend to vote Democratic. Um, so, yeah, as I write in my piece and as Ari Berman in The Nation has reported on a bunch, um, Trump won Wisconsin with by just 23,000 votes. And a 2017 study from the University of Wisconsin that I cite found that Wisconsin's voter ID law deterred or prevented more than 25,000 registered voters. So Trump won by 23,000, but the voter ID law suppressed 25,000, which more than makes up the difference of those votes. So when you take that into account, um, you know, it's easier to say, oh, Hillary didn't campaign enough in Wisconsin, which is something I frankly agree with. I think it was short-sighted of the Clinton campaign not to campaign in Wisconsin after she lost to Bernie in the primary there. Um, However, it's not that simple. And what I really take issue with are the stories, the sort of postmortems we saw in states like Wisconsin that said, oh, well, why didn't black voters turn out, you know, and sort of casting blame on people of color for not turning out when, in fact, this entire system is set up with the express purpose of making it difficult to impossible for people of color to vote. How important do you think voter suppression is in the most highly populated Democratic counties of a state, the counties with the largest numbers of people of color? How important is it to Koch legislative agenda policy success to disenfranchise that voting bloc? Can the Koch agenda, do you think it could happen democratically or must democracy be undermined for it to be passed? Mm. Um. That's an interesting question. Well, I think the interests of capital and the interests of democracy often butt heads, right? So if I were David Koch, I wouldn't want my workers to have power. I wouldn't want them to be allowed to bargain collectively and organize. I wouldn't want any of that because it's a threat to me and my livelihood, (laughs) not to say if I make 1 billion less in a year, that's going to directly threaten my livelihood. But I perceive that as a threat to my livelihood as a billionaire. And so I definitely think corruption can be bipartisan, frankly. Um, It's just that (laughs) Republicans have really gone after that mantle um, over the past 10 years of 
you know, grabbing the brass ring of almost like ultimate corruption by the interests of of wealthy backers. You quote Ben Wickler, the head of the Wisconsin Democrats, telling you, I sort of think of the Trump era as starting in Wisconsin in 2010. You can see in the way that Republicans here are operating in the state legislature that Trump era will not end when Trump is gone. The obsessive pursuit Mm -hmm. of power at the expense of basic Democratic norms is just deeply embedded in the Republican political culture here. Obsessive pursuit of power at the expense of basic democratic norms. Some suggest that Mm -hmm. is how political parties are supposed to work. And that's why the Democratic Party Mm. has tolerated the rise of the far right as much as they have. So why doesn't the Democratic Party or Wisconsin Democrats simply do the same, pursue power at the expense of democracy? (laughs) Well, um, I'm not a Democratic operative, so it was to me a little hard for me to answer this. But I, it's an interesting question. And I think you could find some people to argue that, yes, Democrats should start just, you know, going all out in pursuit of power and taking a chapter from Republicans. But however, I still (laughs) believe in democracy. I think, you know, democracy is sort of the least worst option available to us right now. And frankly, it is why Democrats are sort of outgunned right now, because many of them are still committed to these ideas of, you know, not having a totally corrupt oligarchy for a government, or at least playing by the rule book. And meanwhile, you know, Republicans have set the rule book on fire and are dancing on it with no (laughs) repercussions. So, I don't think it would be smart for Democrats to embrace that style necessarily. However, I think the sort of joie de vivre that you see with people like um, the Republican Assembly leader, Robin Voss, he just, you know, going after his project like a bulldog, I think it would be exciting to see Democrats go after, you know, things like the Green New Deal, Medicare for All with that sort of zeal. I don't think that you have to resort to democratic norms to do so, because frankly, more people agree with them, with Democrats on that, and they have people power on their side. So it's a little asymmetrical there. Republicans have to resort to these minority rule tactics because they're in the minority. Um, the minority of Americans support their policy agenda, whereas the majority of Americans Maybe not all of them vote, but most of them support things like the Green New Deal, Medicare for All, expanded public services. They just are have been silenced by um, oligarchy and by big money interests. And you were saying that they've set the rules on fire. That Not only have they set the rules on fire, they've then rewritten the rules and instituted those new mm-hmm. rules. And they've done this, as you point out throughout your writing, uh, through the processes of gerrymandering and voter suppression, voter suppression, which leads them to have the power to gerrymander. So is this process of minority rule that we are seeing in Wisconsin, how easily is this process, uh, how easily is it? to be able to be adapted in another state? How easily can this be imposed on Connecticut or Florida or anywhere else? Is this the Koch plan for the entire country? And it, it will it be as easy sure. as it was to do in Wisconsin? Sure, that's a great question. And I didn't get to this in my piece, but if I had had even more words, if I had had an infinite word count, I would have gotten to this. Um, there is an organization called the American Legislative Exchange Council, um, also called ALEC. And the purpose of this group is to get conservative state lawmakers together in a room from all over the country and essentially distribute white papers and um, sample legislation with actual language um, for bills that that these state lawmakers should introduce in their state legislatures. So you hear a lot about, you know, you you hear a lot of conspiracy theories about, you know, Democrats participating in some dark cabal and organizing with the media to whatever, strip Americans of their freedom. 
in reality, <laughs> there are these very well-funded organizations such as Alex with the express purpose of getting state lawmakers together and distributing the agenda of Alex billionaire backers, such as the Koch brothers who are tied to Alex, to get them to introduce legislation in their own state legislatures. So it's a really an example of this is coming from the top in a lot of ways. Sure, there are Republican candidates. We saw the Tea Party movement in 2010, which saw um, Senator Ron Johnson elected in Wisconsin and in over Russ Feingold, the progressive champion. Um, so there are some grassroots efforts from Republicans, but in a lot of cases, it comes from the top and it comes from um, these sort of dark money donors. So it's hard to say where the money is coming from in a lot of the cases, but you can identify some like Paul Singer. There is um, the Uline family in Illinois uh, or in Wisconsin. There's the owner of the Ricketts family in Illinois, certainly is a big Republican backer who owned the Cubs. Um, and all of these people are, are coordinating with each other to ensure that the politicians whose campaigns they give handsome sums of money to help to carry out their anti anti-worker agenda. This past Tuesday, Wisconsin opened early voting and they set a record number of votes cast. Despite earlier obstacles, how much has the state overcome any problems with voting caused by the pandemic? Mm -hmm. Because I when I was thinking about the pandemic and I was thinking about your writing, I was thinking you know, I was considering, you know, voter suppression in uh, the Milwaukee area in southeastern Wisconsin. And I, I was just wondering how much that voter suppression may be circumvented by these processes that we're putting in place right now to vote during a pandemic. Does the do the processes of voting during a pandemic might that undermine the ability for the Republican Party to suppress the vote in Wisconsin? <laughs> sure. Well, then you get into the problem of the course. It's not just politics isn't just limited to the governor's mansion and it's not just limited to the state legislature. It's not just limited to the white house. As we've seen, you have to take into account the partisanship found in uh, every court in America right now, starting with the Supreme court and going down to the state level. So Wisconsin state Supreme court is conservative and it has um, this spring there in the midst of the pandemic, Wisconsin actually held um, a state Supreme Court election. However, the Supreme Court has instituted or ruled in favor of Republicans in the state legislature and against Democratic Governor Tony Evers and the Democrats in the state le legislature just since COVID began. Um, in May, the state Supreme Court struck down Tony Evers' stay-at-home order, which was just an unprecedented level of ne judicial negligence, in my opinion, and I would say led to more people getting sick in Wisconsin from the virus, if not dying from the virus, because the Supreme Court went out of its way to side with Republicans in the state legislature and repeal the stay-at-home order. So you're seeing not only state lawmakers like Robin Voss and other Republicans in the state really pushing hard for voter disenfranchisement and all these other things, but you're seeing the state Supreme Court side with those Republicans time and time again with the explicit purpose of helping Republicans' agenda. So that gives me real pause, especially as we're going into this election and there's going to be so much chaos chaos and confusion and Wisconsin is an important battleground state. Um, so I am concerned, let me say, about to see how the Wisconsin State Supreme Court um, deals with, you know, questions of voter rights and voter access in this election. And it's something that we should all be paying extremely close attention to. 
So you mentioned the Supreme Court, state Supreme Court in Wisconsin. You call them hyper-conservative. And you talk about how the assembly, the state assembly and the state senate are both uh, dominated by Republicans due to gerrymandering. So that only leaves one mm-hmm. branch, the executive branch, that the Democrats mm-hmm. have any possibility of having any influence over. How little power does the governor of Wisconsin have even when it, when it is a Democratic uh, governor? How little power do they have? Right. Well, it shows sort of the the paradox of executive power in the states where supposedly we are we have this three branch system of government. Right. And they all hold each other in check. Um, In reality, our Democratic governor, Tony Evers, has had a lot of his powers stripped of him even before he took office after um, voters voted Scott Walker out in 2018, was it? I can't keep track of time anymore. Um, After Walker was voted out, his allies in the state legislature implemented all of these rules that would strip the executive of its power. So in a lame duck session, after Walker was voted out, the Republicans rammed through these measures. And I've written about this at The Intercept ran through these measures to strip the incoming Democratic executive of his powers. So again, you see, you know, just blatant, blatant abuses of power in the name of retaining minority rule in the state. And that's something that can be translated, I think, to the national level if Joe Biden wins and if Donald Trump concedes, which are two separate questions, um, it's very possible that Republicans in the Senate will ram through, just as you're seeing them ram through Amy Coney Barrett's nomination today, just ram through as many um, structural changes as they can to neuter Democrats' power. We have been speaking with writer and Milwaukee resident Emma Roller, author of The New Republic Story, How Wisconsin Became a Bastion of White Supremacy. I've got one more question for you, Emma. You can find out more about Emma at emmaroller.substack.com, and you can follow Emma on Twitter at Emma Roller. Our final question for each and every one of our guests is what we call the question from hell, the question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer, or our audience is going to hate your response. How much should white grievance be aimed at capitalism, the market, neoliberalism, financialization, globalization, instead of some imagined unfairness based on the fact that they are white. How do you get grieved white people to realize Mm -hmm. that grievance isn't there any other individual's fault, but the system of neoliberal capitalism? How do you get them to understand who they should be grieved against or what they should be grieved at? Mm Mm-hmm. Oh man. Well, I have not, I'm not read up on my marks as much as I should be, but I feel like this is where I would give a plug for dialectical materialism, (laughs) which is a term I'm not even um, confident using myself, but which is to say it's, it's through the hard work. It's through organizing with your coworkers, which is even harder during a pandemic than it was before the pandemic. But it's about, I think, checking in on your people, first of all, and showing support, showing solidarity. Um, You know, there's the saying solidarity, not charity. And I think as more people see whether it be protesting for Black lives in the streets or organizing within your workplace for um, better benefits, better leave policy, whatever it may be, that gives other people hope. And I think despair and hate sort of fester in the absence of hope. And that's what can lead to this sort of grievance politics of you feel so deprived and yet you don't have the language to identify oh, this is actually what is causing, you know, my misery, the fact that I don't have health care, the fact that I don't have unemployment benefits, the fact that I can't get a job, the fact that there is a pandemic and leaders aren't doing anything to stop it. You know, (laughs) people of color aren't causing those problems, but 
the people who are in power are doing everything they can to convince white people that people of color are to blame for their problems. And I just think that can only work for so long. You can only fool people for so long, right? So I just have to hope, um, and I end my piece this way. My grandfather, uh, George Pridgick, was a bricklayer in Milwaukee, um, and he was a proud member of the bricklayers union for more than 50 years. I actually have this little gold or brass plaque that he got for his 50th anniversary as a member of the bricklayers union. And I just have to think about how we can get back to that time while also ensuring racial justice and equality that wasn't present at that time. Um, Sorry, this is all very rambling, but this is all to say I do have hope that Wisconsin can return to its progressive roots. We can return to those days. We can put public education and public health and clean drinking water and public parks and libraries. We can make those priorities again. It's going to be extremely difficult when Republicans have cemented these um, rules and these maps and these laws that try to disenfranchise anyone who is their opponent. However, I just can't lose hope that the people have the power when we organize collectively and we will always have the power. And once people wake up to that, it's over for them. It's over for them. So that's what I'd like to leave you with. Yeah, that's exactly. That's how you answer a question from hell, all right, on a show called This Is Hell. (laughs) Emma, thank you so much for being on the show. And uh, we'll probably be getting back in touch with you after the election to see what's happening in Wisconsin, because I have a feeling Mm -hmm. that it's not going to be great. So, Emma, thank you so much for being on our show this week. Thank you so much. Live from late capitalism, where we know the price of everything but the value of nothing, this is hell. We are looking for volunteer board operators here on This Is Hell, people who can show up regularly one, two, three, or more times a week, uh, or even a month, uh, for our daily 10 a.m. show here at our studios above Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon in Chicago. We're very flexible, and if you can only do it weekly or a couple times a month, we can work around your schedule. If you are interested in this unique opportunity, email me at chuck at thisishell.com. Chuck at thisishell.com. The position does come with a very modest stipend, so keep that in mind as well. This is also your chance to have access to a professional studio for your own projects as well. If you have your own podcast idea or sound projects of any kind, you get access to our studio. If you are interested in becoming a board op here on This Is Hell, email me, chuck at thisishell.com, chuck at thisishell.com. We got a very succinct email from Lisa who writes, Hey there, what kind of help do you need of late? I got in touch, uh, I, I got too much time on my hands, Lisa says. I got too much time on my hands. Apparently, a lot of listeners have time on their hands during the pandemic, and we will be getting in touch with all of you because not only are we looking for help on producing the show, we have some behind-the-scenes work that also needs to be done, and we'll be looking for listeners to help us with that as well. If you are interested, again, email me at chuck at com. We want to thank the people who supported This Is Hell by going to com and clicking on support. Thank go, thanks goes out to Neil, John, Affordable Portables, Jonathan, and Magnificent Me. You can also go to thisishell.com and click on support and find all the different ways that you can support This Is Hell, including all of our merch, like our new gray on black trucker's cap, face mask, tote bag, t-shirt, all that kind of stuff. Daphne, please remind our listening audience, what is this week's question from hell? This week's question from hell is, how are you frightening children in your neighborhood this weekend? So how are people answering our question from hell this week so far. John T. says, by telling them I wrote in Buddy Guy, Willie Dixon, and Blind Lemon Jefferson, per per instructions. All right. Jack B. says, by showing them a picture of the dead clock. (laughs) Adam A., by asking them what they want to be when they grow up, listening thoughtfully to them, and then finally replying, that's a fine dream. Little insert name here let me tell you all about bullshit jobs <laughs> that's a good answer graham m says by telling them they're adopted and their new parents don't love them <laughs> <Nice>. <laughs> good god 
Wally R says, I'm screaming at them about the sins of socialism and fluoridated water All right. and chemtrails. <laughs> nice. Pammy H telling them that the Arctic's that the Arctic isn't doing its normal October refreeze. Mwahaha. <laughs> God, evil laugh at the end, too. Kevin O, this year's Halloween treat, raisins that are not organic. <laughs> Thomas K, I'm quoting the Pope. Mm-hmm. Zach N, by simply existing. Mark A, by offering them big masks-less h- hugs. Um, Garrett S, showing off my homemade Kanye... 2020 sign <laughs> Rosario C I don't they will get the horror later <laughs> nice Mark A children I just have to step out the front door and look cross-eyed at anyone and a half dozen QAnon conspirators will pizzagate me <laughs> oh god that's bad news to hear from somebody who owns a restaurant are there any more responses to the question from hell so far that's all so far okay and uh, rem- what's, the, what's the question from hell again just repeat it one more time so everybody remembers it's how are you frightening children in your neighborhood this weekend? It's time for nasty, gnarly, nauseous, naughty, nerdy, icky, drippy, sticky, goopy, gloppy, globby, gory, rotten history. By the way, you can leave your question from Hell at our Facebook page. You can tweet it to us. You can send it to us via email, chuck at thisishell.com or alex at thisishell.com. In Rotten History, October 26th, 1689, 331 years ago today, Monday, Austrian and Serbian troops under the command of General N.E.A. Silvio Piccolomini, an Italian nobleman serving the Austrian Habsburg dynasty, arrived in the Macedonian city of Skopje, having driven out Turkish troops in an ongoing military campaign against the Ottoman Empire. So Italian general fighting for the Austrian Habsburgs by driving out Turks from Macedonia. Got it. Upon arriving Skopje, General Piccolomini issued an order for the city to be burned down. Some historical accounts say he feared his forces could not hold and govern a city located so far from his headquarters in Vienna. So, logistics problem. Why not burn it down? Others claimed that he was trying to stop an outbreak of cholera, which had already killed many people in the area. So, again, why not burn it down? But if fire can stop a plague, then why aren't wildfires in California lowering their COVID caseload? In any case, Piccolomini's order was carried out immediately in Skopje, burned for two days. Countless houses, shops, and businesses were destroyed, especially in the Jewish quarter, and I'm starting to think this arson was not about problematic logistics or fighting cholera. The city's population dropped from 60,000 to only about 10,000, but the cholera epidemic raged, and General General Piccolomini himself soon died of cholera. So, in case there's any of you anti-maskers, never-maskers out there, thinking we can get back to normal through fire, put the oil cans down and put your masks back on, please. In Rotten History, October 27th, 1553, 467 years ago this Tuesday, the renowned Spanish doctor, astronomer, cartographer, and theologian Miguel Cerveto, better known by his Latin name, Michael Cervetus. I don't know, Miguel Cerveto sounds a lot more nice to me than Michael Servetus. He was executed in Geneva for the crime of heresy. Servetus, one of the most famous European intellectuals of his time, had angered officials of the French Inquisition by publicly rejecting the Roman Catholic doctrine of the Holy Trinity, as well as denouncing the practice of infant baptism, which he called an invention of the devil. Uh, Not to be picky here, but if the Holy Trinity and infant baptism are your problems with the church, I really don't think you're looking hard enough. There's some bigger issues there. Arrested by Catholic authorities in France, Servetus had escaped from prison and was on his way to Italy when he stopped in Geneva, Switzerland, to attend a sermon by the Protestant theologian John Calvin, with whom he had earlier carried on a correspondence that began cordially but had ended in angry recriminations. Besides, back then, there, what, what were you going to do? All the entertainment you had was attending sermons, which must have really really sucked. Despite their falling out, Servetus apparently was still interested in Calvin's ideas. But unfortunately for him, Calvin and his Protestant supporters had come around to agreeing with 
the Catholics' condemnation of him. And while Calvin had many bones to pick with the Church of Rome, he nonetheless wanted to show it, that he, too, was zealous in his defense of the Christian faith. So Calvin saw to it that Servetus was arrested again. Even the Protestants were acting as cops for the church. The court in Geneva accused Servetus not only of religious heresy, but also of homosexuality and studying the Quran. Why not homosexuality while studying the Quran while you're at it, among other things? Servetus was found guilty and burned at the stake on a massive fire of his own books. Look, capital punishment is wrong. Executing someone is horrible. Committing murder, killing someone. If I re- remember right, I'm pretty sure that's a sin. Yes, all that's wrong, but to burn someone alive using their own books as fuel, that's just mean and cruel. I guess that's what Christ wanted when he started the Catholic Church. Finally, in Rotten History, October 28, 1834, 186 years ago this Wednesday, British Captain James Sterling led 25 soldiers, police, and civilian settlers in a carefully planned attack on an encampment of indigenous Noongar people at Pinjara on the banks of the Murray River south of Perth, Western Australia. Let's see. Britain, soldiers, Australia. Yep, this will definitely be rotten history. Accounts differ widely, but it's now believed that the attackers killed at least 30 to 80 Nungar men, women, and children. Editors of the Perth Gazette quickly approved of the Pinjara massacre, calling it a severe but well-merited chastisement of the indigenous group, which is it blamed for recent attacks on British occupiers and on neighboring aboriginal communities. And this, as this is rotten his, history, I'm betting... None of that blame was merited and that they were not responsible of any of the crimes that they were claimed to have committed. In its reporting, the Perth Gazette estimated the number of dead at 25 to 30, but one British corporal later called the attack an indiscriminate slaughter of a harmless and unoffending tribe and said that as many as two to 300 people were shot. So the victims were far more innocent and the killing of them was far more deadly than reported, which sounds about right. Other eyewitness accounts at least make it clear that the event at Punjara was a massacre and also that some British settlers were against it. So exaggerate the guilt of the victims, downplay how many you kill, and erase any objections of dissent. The British really had this whole colonial oppression thing down. Accounts speak of dead bodies sent floating down the river and dozens of others buried in a big hole. Meanwhile, only one of the British attackers was killed, but... Despite the one-sided nature of the violence, Australian school children were taught for years afterward that the attack at Pinjara was a battle between roughly evenly matched forces, which is the cherry on top of the Imperial Sunday. After you ruthlessly murder hundreds for no reason but to take their land, teach your children and their children and their children's children the executions were heroic and justified. Now that's rotten history, and this is hell. Daphne, has Alex told you who is going to be on the rest of this week's shows? Um, he told me who will be on tomorrow. Oh, that's good. So who's going to be on tomorrow's show? Uh, Diana Lind. Um, with her new book, Brave New Home, Our Future in Smarter, Simpler, Happier Housing. Ah, Big Brother is subletting in your house right now, so we'll be talking to you on tomorrow's show. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show podcast, live-streaming host Chuck Mertz. Producing this show is Daphne Augustin. I want to thank our guest today, Emma Roller, Daphne, producing the show, Alex for assisting in the way, way background of the show. Thanks to Ronaldo for Rotten History. We told you so. This is hell. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com. <laughs>